Chapter Five of My Doggy and I by Robert Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter Five: Conspiracy, Villainy, Innocence, and Tragedy. In one of the dirtiest of the dirty and disreputable dens of London, a man and a boy sat on that same dark December night engaged in earnest conversation. Their seats were stools, their table was an empty flour barrel, their apartment a cellar. A farthing candle stood awry in the neck of a pint bottle, a broken-lipped jug of gin and water, hot, and two cracked teacups stood between them. The damp of the place was drawn out, rather than abated, by a small fire, which burned in a rusty grate, over which they sought to warm their hands as they conversed. The man was palpably a scoundrel. Not less so was the boy. Slaga, said the man in a growling voice. We must do it this very night. Well, Brassi, I'm game, replied the slogger, draining his cup with a defiant air. If it ain't been for that old ooman as was caretaker all last summer, continued the man as he pricked a refractory tobacco pipe, we'd have found the job more difficult. But you see, she went and lost the key at a back door, and the doctor, he had to get another. So I goes and gets round the old ooman and pumps her about the lost key, and at last I finds it, you see. But returned the slogger with a knowing frown. Seems to me as how you'd never get two keys into one lock, eh? The new one wouldn't let the old one in, would it? Ah, that's where it is, replied Mr. Brassy with a leer as he raised his cup to his large, ugly mouth and chuckled. You see, the doctor's wife, she's somewhat timorsome and looks arter to locking up every night herself. Very particular. Then she has all the keys up in her own bedroom o' nights. So you see, in consequence of her uncommon care, she keeps all the locks clear for you and me to work upon. The slogger was so overcome by this instant of the result of excessive caution that he laughed heartily for some minutes and had to apply for relief to the hot gin and water. However, did you come for to find that out? asked the boy. Servants replied the man. Ha! exclaimed the boy with a wink, which would have been knowing if the spirits had not by that time rendered it ridiculous. Yes, you see, continued the elder ruffian, blowing a heavy cloud of smoke like a cannon shot from his lips. Servants is variable in character. Some is good and some is bad. I mostly take up with a bad uns. There's one in the doctor's house as is a prime favorite with me, and knows all about the locks she does. But there's a new one. Unexpected difficulties sprang up in the way in this very morning. What's that? demanded the slogger, with an air of a man prepared to defy all difficulties. They've been and got a dog, a little dog, too, the very worst kind for kicking up a row. However, it ain't the first time you and I have met and conquered such a difficulty. You'll take a bit of cat's meat in your pocket, you know. All right, exclaimed the young housebreaker with a reckless toss of his shaggy head as he laid his hand on the jug, but the elder scoundrel laid his stronger hand upon it. Come, Slaga, no more of that. 
You've had too much already. You won't be fit for duty if you take more. It's very hard on a cove, growled the lad sulkily. Brassy looked narrowly into his face, then took up the forbidden jug, and himself drained it, after which he rose, grasped the boy by his collar, and forced him, struggling, towards a sinkful of dirty water, into which he thrust his head and shook it about roughly for a second or two. "'There, that'll sober you,' said the man, releasing the boy and sending him into the middle of the room with a kick. "'Now, don't let your monkey rise, Slogger. It's all for your good. I'll be back in half an hour. See that you have the tools ready.' So saying, the man left the cellar and the boy, who was much exasperated, though decidedly sobered by his treatment, proceeded to dry himself with a jack towel and make preparations for the intended burglary. The house in regard to which such interesting preparations were being made was buried, at the hour I write of, in profound repose. As its fate and its family have something to do with my tale, I shall describe it somewhat particularly. In the basement there was an offshoot, or scullery, which communicated with the kitchen. This scullery had been set apart that day as the bedroom of my little dog. Of course, I knew nothing of this, and what I am about to relate at that time. I learned it all afterwards. Dumps lay sound asleep on a flannel bed, made by loving hands, in the bottom of a soap box. It lay under the shadow of a beer cask, the servant's beer, a fresh cask which, having arrived late that evening, had not been relegated to the cellar. The only other individual who slept on the basement was the footman. That worthy, being elderly and feeble, though bold as a lion, had been doomed to the lower regions by his mistress as a sure protection against burglars. He went to bed nightly with a poker and a pistol, so disposed that he could clutch them both while in the act of springing from the bed, this arrangement was made not to relieve his own fears, but by order of his mistress, with whom he could hold communication at night without rising, by means of a speaking-tube. John, he chanced to bear my own name, had been so long subject to night alarms, partly from cats careering in the back yard, and his mistress demanding to know, through the tube, if he had heard them partly also from frequent ringing of the night bell by persons who urgently wanted Dr. Matugal, that he had become callous in his nervous system and did much of his night work as a semi-somnambulist. The rooms on the first floor above, consisting of the dining room, library, and consulting room, etc., were left, as usual, tenantless and dark at night. On the drawing-room floor, Mrs. Matugal lay in her comfortable bed, sound asleep and dreamless. The poor lady had spent the first part of that night in considerable fear because of the restlessness of dumps in his new and strange bedroom, her husband being absent because of a sudden call to a country patient. The speaking tube had been pretty well worked, and John had been lively in consequence, though patient, but at last the drowsy god had calmed the good lady into a state of oblivion. On the floor above, besides various bedrooms, there were the night nursery and the schoolroom. In one of the bedrooms slumbered the young lady who had robbed me of my doggie. In the nursery were four cribs and a cradle. Dr. McTougall's family had come in what I may style annual progression. 
Six years he had been married, and each year had contributed another annual to the army. The children were now ranged round the walls with mathematical precision, one, two, three, four, and five. The doctor liked them all to be together, and the nursery, being unusually large, permitted of this arrangement. A tall, powerful, sunny-tempered woman of uncertain age officered the army by day and guarded it by night. Jack and Harry and Job and Jenny occupied the cribs, Dolly the cradle. Each of these creatures had been transfixed by sleep in the very midst of some desperate enterprise during the earlier watches of that night, and all had fallen down in more or less degazé and reckless attitudes. Here a fat fist doubled, there a fatter leg protruded, elsewhere a spread eagle was represented, with the bedclothes in a heap on its stomach, or a complex knot was displayed, made up of legs, sheets, blankets, and arms. Subsequently, the tall but faithful guardian had gone round, disentangled the knot, reduced the spread eagle, and straightened them all out. They now lay, stiff and motionless as mummies, roseate as the morn, deceptively innocent, with eyes tight shut and mouths wide open, save in the case of Dolly, whose natural appetite could only be appeased by the nightly sucking of two of her own fingers. In the attics, three domestics slumbered in peace. Still higher, a belated cat reposed in the lee of a chimney stack. It was a restful scene, which none but a heartless monster could have ventured to disturb. Even Brassy and the Slogger had no intention of disturbing it. On the contrary, it was their earnest hope that they might accomplish their designs on the doctor's plate with as little disturbance as possible. Their motto was a paraphrase. Get the plate, quietly if you can, but get the plate. In the midst of the universal stillness, when no sound was heard save the sighing of the night wind or the solemn creaking of an unsuccessful smoke curer, there came a voice of alarm down the tube. John, do you hear burglars? Oh, dear, no, Mum, I don't. I'm convinced I hear them at the back of the house, tubed Mrs. McTougall. Indeed, it ain't, Mum, tubed John in reply. It's only that little dog as comed this morning and ain't got used to its new home yet. It's a whining, Mum. That's what it is. Oh, do get up, John, and put a light beside him. Perhaps he's afraid of the dark. Very well, Mum, said John, obedient but savage. He arose, upset the poker and pistol with a hideous clatter, which was luckily too remote to smite horror into the heart of Mrs. McTougall, and groped his way into the servants' hall. Lighting a paraffin lamp, he went into the scullery, using very unfair and harsh language towards my innocent dog. Pompey, you brute! The footman had already learned his name. Hold your noise! There! He set the lamp on the head of the beer cask and returned to bed. It is believed that the poor, perplexed dumps viewed the midnight apparition with silent surprise and wagged his tail, being friendly, then gazed at the lamp after the apparition had retired, until obliged to give the subject up, like a difficult conundrum, and finally went to sleep, perchance to dream of dogs or me. It was while Dumps was thus engaged that Brassy and the Slogger walked up to the front of the house and surveyed it in silence for a few minutes. 
They also took particular observations of both ends of the street. All serene, said Brassy. Now you go round to the back and use your key quietly. Give him the bit of meat quick. He won't give tongue arter he smells it, and one or two barks won't alarm the house. So get along, Slogger. When you've got him snug with a rope round his neck and his head in the flannel bag, just caterwaul and I'll come around. Bless the cats. They're a great help to gentlemen in our procession. Thus admonished, the slogger chuckled and melted into the darkness, while Brassy mingled himself with the shadow of a pillar. The key, lost by the caretaker and found by the burglar, fitted into the empty lock even more perfectly than that which Mrs. McTougall had conveyed to her mantelpiece some hours before. It was well oiled, too, and went round in the wards of the lock without giving a chirp, so that the bolt flew back with one solitary shot. The report, however, was loud. It caused Dumps to return from Dogland and raise his head with a decided growl. Nobody heard the growl except the slogger, who stood perfectly still for nearly a minute with his hand on the door handle. Then he opened the door slowly and softly, so slowly and softly that an alarm bell attached to it did not ring. A sharp, bow, wow, wow, however, greeted him as he entered, but he was prompt. A small piece of meat fell directly under the nose of Dumps, as he stood bristling in front of his box. And, let me add, when Dumps bristled, it was a sight to behold. Good dog, good dog, said the slogger in his softest and most insinuating tone. Dumps reduced his bark to a growl. The footman heard both bark and growl, but attributing them to the influence of cats, turned on his other side and listened, not for burglars, innocent man, but for the tube. It was silent. Evidently, tired nature was, in Mrs. McTougall's case, lulled by the sweet restorer. Forthwith, John betook himself again to the land of Nod. Have another bit, said the slogger, in quite a friendly way, after the first bit had been devoured. My too trusting favorite wagged his tail and innocently accepted the bribe. It was good cat's meat. Dumps liked it. The enormous supper with which he had lain down was, by that time, nearly assimilated, and appetite had begun to revive. Going down on his knee, the young burglar held out a third morsel of temptation in his hand. Dumps meekly advanced and took the meat. It was a sad illustration of the ease with which even a dog descends from bad to worse. While he was engaged with it, the slogger gently patted his head. Suddenly, Dumps found his muzzle grasped and held tight in a powerful hand. He tried to bark and yell, but could produce nothing better than a scarcely audible whine. His sides were at the same instant grasped by a pair of powerful knees, while a rope was twisted round his neck, and the process of strangulation began. But strangulation was not the slogger's intention. He had been carefully warned not to kill. Mind you now, don't you screw him up too tight, Brassy had said when giving the boy his instructions before starting. Dogs is worth money. Just hold him tight and quiet till you get the flannel bag on his head. Then stand by till I've sacked the swag. Accordingly, having effected the bagging of the dog's head, the young burglar went to the door, holding Dumps tight in his arms, and uttered a pretty loud and lifelike caterwaul. 
Brassy heard it, emerged from the shade of his pillar, and was soon beside his comrade. When Dumps smelt and heard the newcomer, he redoubled his efforts to free his head and yell, but the slogger was too much for him. Few words were wasted on this occasion. The couple understood their work. Brassy took up the lamp. "'Very considerate of him to have a light all ready for us,' he muttered as he lowered the flame a little and glided into the kitchen, leaving the slogger on guard in the scullery. Here he found a variety of gins and snares, carefully placed for him, and such as he, by strict orders of Mrs. McTougall. Besides a swing bell on the window shutter, similar to that which had done so little service on the scullery door, there was a coal scuttle with the kitchen tongs balanced against it, and a tin slop pail in company with the kitchen shovel, and a watering pan, which, the poker being already engaged to John, was balanced on its own rows and handle, all ready to fail with a touch. These outworks, being echeloned along the floor, rendered it impossible for an intruder to cross the kitchen in the dark without overturning one or more of them. Thanks to the lamp, Brassy steered his way carefully with a grim smile. At John Waters' door, he paused and listened. John's nose revealed his condition. Gliding up the stairs on shoeless feet, the burglar entered the dining room, picked the locks of the sideboard with marvelous celerity, unfolded a canvas bag, and placed therein whatever valuables he could lay hands on. Proceeding next to the drawing-room floor, he began to examine and appropriate the articles of virtue that appeared to him most valuable. Not being a perfect judge of such matters, Mr. Brassy was naturally puzzled with some of them. One, in particular, caused him to regard it with frowning attention for nearly a minute before he came to the conclusion that it was worth money. He placed the lamp on the small table near the window, from which he had lifted the ornament in question, and sat down on a crimson chair, with gilded legs, to examine it more critically. Meanwhile, the slogger, left in the dark with the still, fitfully struggling dumps, employed his leisure in running over some of the salient events of his past career, and in trying to ascertain, by the very faint light that came from a distant street lamp, what was the nature of his immediate surroundings. His nose told him that the cask at his elbow was beer. His exploring right hand told him that the trap was in it. His native intelligence suggested a tumbler on the head of the cask, and the exploring hand proved the idea to be correct. Brassy was very hard on me tonight, he thought. I'd like to have a swig. But Dumps was sadly in the way. To remove his left hand, even for an instant, from the dog's muzzle was not to be thought of. In this dilemma, he resolved to tie up the said muzzle, and the legs also, even at the risk of causing death. It would not take more than a minute to draw a tumbler full, and any dog worth a straw could hold his wind for a minute. He would try. He did try, and was yet in the act of drawing the beer when my doggie burst his bonds by a frantic effort to be free. Probably the hairy nature of his little body had rendered a firm bond impossible. At all events, he suddenly found his legs loose. Another effort, more frantic than before, set free the muzzle, and then there arose on the still night air a yell so shrill, so loud, so indescribably horrible, that its conception must be left entirely to the reader's imagination. At the same instant, 
Dumps scurried into the kitchen. The scuttle and tongs went down. The slop pail and shovel followed suit, also the watering pan, into which latter Dumps went head foremost as it fell, and from its interior another yell issued with such resonant power that the first yell was a mere chirp by contrast. The slogger fled from the scene like an evil spirit, while John Waters sprang up and grasped the pistol and poker. The effect on Brassy in the drawing-room cannot be conceived, much less described. He shot, as it were, out of the crimson gilded chair, and overturned the lamp which burst on the floor. Being half full of paraffin oil, it instantly set fire to the gauze window curtains. The burglar made straight for the stairs. John Waters, observing the light, dashed up the same, and the two met face to face on the landing, breathing hate and glaring defiance. End of chapter 5